Hello and welcome to He's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about Roma. Which we've just seen on Netflix. On a telly. On a telly. And Mike has been moaning and moaning and moaning. and Instead of, <laughs> instead of a cinema screen uh-huh. where films are supposed to be. <laughs> it's a film that's going down very well. You know, It's making kind of top ten lists and best of the year and all that sort of stuff. People are yes. really into it. It's um, uh, written and directed and shot by uh, Alfonso Cuaron. Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, autobiographical uh, to uh, a reasonable extent and it's about where he grew up in Mexico in a neighbourhood called Roma right? Uh, which is a kind of it's a middle class slash upper middle class neighbourhood it's about a family the kind of you know I, I think I think the young boy that you see most of in the family is the cipher mm. for Alfonso Cuaron himself um, but it's about uh, the entire family and particularly the maid uh, who's a live-in maid uh, called Cleo, who is kind of indigenous, right? She, uh, she speaks yeah, a language... she is indigenous. She speaks a language mix, mixtal, mixcal? Um, I don't know. She I'll speaks a language. She speaks a language, <laughs> I think it's mixcal, uh, which I'd never heard of. Uh, but the film actually, the, the film is in Spanish primarily, and the subtitles come up at the start and say, subtitles for Spanish will be like this, mm. and subtitles for mixcal will look slightly different. So uh-huh. you know what they're speaking. I'd never heard of this language, so clearly there's... Um, you know, there's there's a project of kind of representation there. That the only time you hear mixed cows is when she's speaking with other quote unquote indigenous. Um, yes, usually people. other domestic servants. Exactly. Um, the um, the family and people of a higher status don't speak it. Mm. And there's also an, an element of you get the sense of the language kind of fading out. Um, that uh, I think she's told at one point, don't speak it. You know, the, little, the little boy tells her, yeah, don't speak that. Yeah. I can't um, understand. So, um, the way English people tell other people speaking other languages and trains now to stop speaking. Well, <laughs> speak English. <laughs> to be honest, I think it more goes with uh, when we when we tell the Welsh not to speak Welsh. <laughs> well, there's that joke. <laughs> that, that, that's more about kind of being indigenous. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's 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 certainly an element of um, kind of cultural whitewashing. Um, yes, there's a hierarchy in the film yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, the film is about two hours, fifteen minutes long, and it's it has a kind of it has a tonal uh, sort of set of movements in it. it. It does have plot, but there's an awful lot of just watching the way that life goes. Yes, um, and kind of living in the I world. I love that. Yeah, go on then. Well, no, I love that. I mean, I think. Um, you know, people have been talking about the debt to neorealism. And, you know, one of the ways in which this film is in debt to neorealism is that you see a whole world around the protagonist's dilemma, right? So, you know, the protagonist normally, uh, you know, you're introduced to her, in this case, the maid. You know, she kind of lives in a particular room with another maid. Uh, I think she's the nanny and maybe the other one's the maid, but they share domestic tasks. Mm. Um, they're subordinate to the family. You know, they live in this little room, kind of semi-outside the house. Um, but actually, what Quaron always is showing you is a whole world that goes along with who they are and what they do. So, you know, when you go to the cinema, you're seeing the film, you're seeing the architecture of the cinema itself, you're seeing the people hawking, you know, whatever it is they're hawking outside, right? Uh, when the mother takes the children to the beach to tell her about her divorce, you see a wedding taking place, 
right? There's always things happening on the streets, student protests, you know, as her water breaks, right? So you get the sense of a whole world that's being kind of revealed as, you know, uh, um, context. Yeah, there's a context to these people that's kind of revealed in widescreen and in depth of field by tons of other events happening alongside. Yeah, it's a film in which sort of the the visual design um, is very crisp, very clear and very neat and very, very careful. And um, you could sort of freeze frame aspects. You could could just take shots and pause it and look at all the details and all the set design Mm -hmm. and all the kind of... All the people, if you know, if it's in like a street scene, all the people kind of dotted around and how they're dressed and what they're doing and how they're interacting, all that sort of stuff. There's an awful lot of detail and all of that. It's incredibly carefully composed. Mm. Um, and also in these shots, you get the, these these like 360 degree pans. You know, they're not always 360 degree, but sometimes they are. These very very slow pans um, across scenes or like inside the house, things like that, where. The action is kind of it's it's very carefully choreographed and timed. Yes. Um, and there's there's it's kind of it's almost it's it's kind of theatrical, you know. It's um, or, or in other words, it's not naturalistic. It's not kind of you you feel the sort of technique. In it. Yeah, you feel a kind of mise en scène. There's a scene, right. for example, where um, what's the protagonist's name? Cleo. Where Cleo is walking through the house. You know, and, you know, you see children jumping on a bed and then you see the husband and a wife having an argument in another open bedroom. And, you know, kind of each of the bedrooms frames an action as she walks by. Mm. It's very carefully. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, put on the scene. <laughs> the language is called Mixtec. Uh-huh. Mixtec. I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. M-I-X-T-E-C. But mm-hmm. that's, um, yeah, uh, I'd not heard of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, there you go. Yes. Anyway, back to what we were talking about. So we're talking about the mise-en-scene. Yes. Um, which I, I, I think it's very beautiful. I mean, you know, I was very interested in just my own response to the film, right? Because part of the reason why I hesitated so long to see it was because of the length, right? And because it was in black and white. Right? They, I really, they were turn-offs for you. Um, they, in modern film, they are. Like, I mean, I love black and white film. So you're always telling me how much I hate black and white film. Well, you know, there you go. <laughs> I anyway, true, I think but... there's something pretentious about kind of making a film today in black and white normally. Mm. Though, of course, I loved Cold War uh, and found it incredibly beautiful. But anyway, it's a prejudice, but it's mine. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I kind of I put off seeing it. Uh, and then, like, as, as often happens, then you feel foolish for having done so because... You know, to me, it just whizzed by. I found it, like, you know, constantly engrossing. Um, I would be lying to say that I found it moving. And actually, maybe that's something we can talk about. I mean, there were obviously moments where I felt I should be moved, mm. but I wasn't quite, right? You I know, know, I know what you mean. Um, so, Well, let's say, we, let's say as well, um, we will get into spoiler territory. Yes. What spoiler territory there is. Um I would imagine you're speaking about when um, Cleo gives birth That's right. to a stillborn baby. That's right. And actually, the scenes around that are very interesting because, you know, so first of all, it's very dramatic, right? So, you know, they're, she's shopping for a, a crib and there are student protests happening outside. And that is beautifully shot. You could see, you know, thousands of people running on the streets, even as you were also seeing the shop. It's really beautifully, beautifully done. Mm. Um 
you know, but then kind of there's gunfire and there's gunshots and, you know, some people chase these, the student protester and they shoot him on the spot. And you realize that one of the people who's shooting him has been the, f- the, the, the boyfriend who, didn't, who doesn't want to recognize the child as his. Yeah. Uh, which actually I would have liked to have seen more of. But sorry, I'm losing track. I mean, the reason why I didn't find the hospital scene moving is because you think something is being done. So, you know, you arrive at the hospital and it's taking them a long time to arrive at the hospital. They arrive late. And then, you know, there are all these dozens of women in labor pains outside the hospital, Mm. right? And you wonder kind of what's that about? And, you know, and then you arrive at the hospital and she gets preferential treatment because obviously she's coming in, you know, with the grandmother, right? With with the white, uh, you know, middle-class grandmother. And then when you, you know, as you go through the various things of the hospital, there are all these women in labor and pain screaming, but it feels like two people, too much, like there's some point being made through just, you know, the, the, this background of like so much labor, so much pain. Yeah, that kind of yeah. is now centralized. It seemed, it's, it seemed that there was going to be some other payoff to that that I wasn't getting, right? So, you know, the, the, the death of the child, which I knew I was supposed to be like extremely moved by, I just kind of wasn't, I, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, if um, there there were things about that that felt blank to me, kind of plain, and um, there seemed to be more that was signifying things you should feel rather than actually being emotionally expressed, right? Real mm-hmm. emotional. I they don't, I didn't feel a kind of emotional heart in the thing. Mm. You know, I felt like everything was a representation of something. Yes. Um, I felt, I did feel moved. There were moments that did move me. So, for example, the moment where she goes to the martial arts um, training to find her husband, uh, um, it it really reminded me of an Emilio Fernandez film actually called uh, Victims of Sin, you know, where this prostitute goes chasing after her pimp you know, who's father the child and with the baby in her hands is like, please take me back. (laughs) Uh, It had kind of moments uh, uh, of that, actually. Though, of course, uh, Cleo is so much more austere and quiet and, you know, maintaining a kind of dignity that, you know, the women in Victims of Sin, you know, didn't have. But I thought that was a powerful moment, really. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It, it, It moved me. Because you also kind of see patriarchy at work, right? And I think there's also a kind of a commentary that I'm not sure I understand on Mexican society, you know, on the casual violence, you know, on the guns, on the ease with which people are killed. Yeah, on the ease with which, you know, this woman is, this pregnant woman is threatened to be beaten up by, you know, uh, the father of her child. Um yeah, kind of. I, I I think the film is really textured. It's it's actually. I, I think it's something that in a way I, I I'd like to see again and think about some more. Um, and some things are coming out just in talking about about them now, really. Mm. Um, but I I I like that very much. And and to me, kind of, um, the film is leisurely paced, but I I I was surprised by how suddenly it ended. 
Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, so kind of, you know... That's exactly the kind of feeling I expected from the ending. I, mean, I didn't expect, like, a big moment or anything. No, but I was just surprised because I, I, I mentally I just thought we have another 45 minutes to go oh, or something. Oh, you mean? You know, <laughs> kind of... You know, I, it's a compliment to the film right. that, you know, it seemed to end so quickly. Oh, right, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I would, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't feel like it hugely took its time for me. Like, I didn't feel like, ugh, when's it going to end? It felt like it ended at an appropriate moment for me. Um, that's interesting but there's certainly the kind of I mean what actually happens at the end the kind of returning to her work and the shot just looking up into the sky I thought that's how I would have done it like that's not a compliment no <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> it's something more interesting there, there, there does I, I, I feel I feel a sense of banality around the whole thing like I didn't feel like there were things I hadn't seen before in a way um, which is which if oh. they're done well is not necessarily you know it's not necessarily um, a criticism but I felt like I've seen this film before I haven't well, what do you have in mind I don't know well, I, I certainly have seen when people uh, I think I have a real dislike of quote unquote personal films when people talk about filmmakers making personal films particularly ones that, uh, really what 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 that what that's code for I think is films in which a filmmaker will very transparently make a film about their childhood and very often include themselves as a cipher character in some way in it. Mm. Something like The 400 Blows, which I find interminable. I love it. Oh, I can't stand it. Or The Tree of Life. Mm. Um, I, I don't think I've ever seen one of these films that I really liked. Um, and I think there's a kind of... There's a way in which doing a project like this sort of feels important just because of what it is. You know, this is this is the film where I'm talking about myself and it's therefore important somehow. The, the, the problem is that... Um, so what? Just, just after we watched the film, before we started recording the podcast, we had a look at uh, a number of essays that were collected... So um, Mediatico almost immediately uh, published a whole series of essays by some of the most distinguished uh, uh, writers on um, Latin American cinema... Yeah of the moment, uh, uh, so Paul Julian Smith and Deborah Shaw and Dolores Tierney uh, and, uh, you know, I hope uh, Belen Vidal, uh, a whole bunch of, uh, of, of excellent uh, uh, film academics. Uh, and we'll link to the dossier uh, in the description as well. Yes. Like, it's really worth reading. And one of the things that came up um, in this dossier is, a, is a, uh, one of the threads between most of the essays is we're responding to Richard Brody in The New Yorker. A yes. lot of them mention it. And I'd been resisting reading his review just because I, yes. I didn't want to kind of take things that he'd said and use them on, you know, I didn't mm. want to do that. Um, and I'd also heard that he was one of the few people who had not an entirely positive view yes. on the film. It's, you know, like I say, it's been going down really well. Um, but because we were having a look at this dossier and he was coming up so much, I thought, I've got to read this thing. <laughs> and then I find out that he, what he was saying is essentially a lot of what I said he said it much better and you know kind of had had more interesting things to say well but, take us through these points I mean but, so where so, where does your thinking and so Richard Brody's like, coincide so, so when I talk about the kind of person I think he mentions something along the lines of not quite assumed knowledge but a, a kind of assumed assumed importance like the, the fact that or the fact that this is all true to some degree or based on true experience gives it import that in another situation you wouldn't get away with not explaining. You wouldn't get away with not dramatising, really. Okay, so like, what do you have in mind? The way in which life is 
kind of depicted the quotidian day-to-day life of the maid and of the family and everything else going on in in this area of Mexico is not that interesting or it was not it didn't it wasn't dramatized such that I understood why it was interesting. <laughs> well, it might not be interesting to you, but it no. certainly proved I mean, one of the things that the dossier brings out is how interesting everybody else found it. Exactly. Because, you know, it's really resonating with people of a particular class and a particular age. This is their world and this is their childhood. So it's of great resonance to them. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it sparks a desire to know. Mm. So, you know, I mean, I don't know what those students' protests were about. I imagine that they have historical significance. I don't know what they were about or what the repercussions were or whatever. But, you know, I think they work very well in the film and they dramatize certain things very well. And they dramatize the discontent and changing times and, Mm. you know, attitudes to authority that I don't think you have to be an expert on. Mexican culture to know and no. it makes me want to know more about you know what, 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 what was that event about, about so I mean I do want to take on other issues because the thing is that Richard Brody has been used as a kind of a bogeyman okay. you know uh, so basically my very quick skimming through that article you know there were two points that seemed to recur one was a kind of treatment of Cleo Right, that he sees her as um, not being given voice to. Right, that yeah. she, she is depicted by another. Um, that's and, actually the title of the article. The, uh, the, the article's called "There's a Voice Missing in okay. Roma." I think that's right. Well, you know, and and to be brutally frank, I agree. Right, and I I actually think that all of the mediatico pieces that I read are too quick to put that under the carpet. So I think there are some things that the film is really praiseworthy about. First of all, I don't remember very many films about indigenous people, you know, being the protagonists of films to begin with. No. You know, I certainly don't remember films in which indigenous people, you know, are, are, uh, are given the point of view for the whole film um, uh, uh, as, as protagonists. So, you know, to me, the film really stands out. But on the other hand, I think the other thing about, you know, this is a film kind of made by, um, you know, someone from another class and another race, you know, and with all of these structural kind of differences uh, that show in the film. So, you know, I think that there's no question that Cuaron is trying to be sympathetic and empathetic, you know, but I also think it's very much kind of an upper class privileged person's view of these people. You know, um, yeah, and I don't think actually that the maid's wishes, her desires, you know, her life are, you know, expressed uh, in a full uh, textured way, you know, kind of, you know, my mom and my aunts were all cleaners and nannies and so on. And let me tell you, you know, kind of they didn't live their life for the family. They had they had families of their own mm-hmm. and they had brothers and sisters and children and, you know, kind of. The film touches on none of that, right? The film, the film's way of making the maid a protagonist, right, is, you know, having her had a boyfriend on the side, obviously, yeah, her pregnancy and the conversations with, you know, her friend who is also the maid in the house, mm. right? You have a little conversation where, uh, you know, New Year's Eve, where she talks to, you know, one of the old people, yeah, yeah. takes her to a party. That's about it. And there's a reference to her mother, whom she can't help because she's embarrassed to be shown pregnant, right? Kind of, you know, 
that is not a fully rounded life. I mean, she she probably had a father and brothers in the village and mm. cousins and, you know, I mean, there's a much richer life that, that you know, it, it's a kind of a conceit of the upper classes to think that their servants live only for them. And actually, yeah. that's pretty much what you see in this film. And I take great exception to that and I agree with Richard Brody. Yeah, well, so what Brody talks about is, is, is um, Cleo being constructed as as a trope of the sort of um, noble, quiet, stoic labourer who kind of keeps himself to themselves and that makes him strong somehow. Mm. Um, and th- that's a problem, that she, she should have more of a life mm. or, or there should be more of kind of who she is. You should, you should be able to understand more of who she is um, rather than, you know, in a more complex way rather than just seeing her as a set of tropes. Mm. And um, one of the responses... Um, to that in the Mediatico article, I can't remember which one it was, I'm trying to find it, um, uh, said, there's another way of looking at that, which is that if she did have more of a voice, um, that would miss the point of how she's dehumanised in the world that she lives in. That, that actually seeing, I'm kind of putting words in the writer's mouth now, this isn't exactly what they said, but um, seeing the, the entire world being seen through the eyes of Quaron and, and the people of whom he is a part, you know, the upper middle class, basically, um, kind of necessarily means that she doesn't have that much of a voice. And I'm not saying I entirely agree with that. Well, I, th- I, I think the I think the issue with kind of having a voice or not, it's not about. I don't think it's about kind of power. It, it's about um, like the fact that she is so quiet and just kind of accepts things throughout the film and and kind of knows her place, if you like, wouldn't be an inherent negative if. It meant something to her character. If it meant something to the film, and I don't think it or does. Or if there were other things going on. I mean, you know, frankly, people in that position don't have much choice but to be quiet and subservient, mm. you know, and so on. But actually, there's a difference between their actions in public and their inner feelings. And actually, I do think that what you don't get very much in this film is access to her inner feelings. Right. You know, to her point of view on that subservience and what she has to keep inside and hidden. Um, and so, yeah. and or, I think, or that if she is suppressing that about herself, then that's not dramatized either. No, I agree. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. And actually, I think the film is too sentimental about the upper class family. Mm. You know, so I'm willing to believe that an upper class family is so kind and generous and so on, right? Uh, and there are, to be fair to the film, moments of sharpness towards the servant from you know the mother mm. and so on. But actually, I think it's all, you know, the family is almost excessively good, (laughs) you know, and you could, you know, from what we know historically about the conditions uh, uh, of domestic workers, you know, that would be an exceptional instance, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, I mean, the right for exploitation and sexual abuse and, you know, and lack of payment and all, all kinds of things. So I think the film is overly sentimental about itself about that family and also about the maid herself i mean there's that moment where you know they're in the martial arts thing and the guru is showing you know a stance that only the very great masters can do and nobody in the field none of these people training to be warriors can do it and the maid does it easily Mm -hmm. and actually i think you know come on (laughs) that's that's silly you know that's kind of imbuing her with like Kind of, you oh, know, she's supernatural. Yeah, she's Mary powers. Poppins. 
I mean, you know, you you can you can you can imbue or characterize people as having inner strength without kind of silly things like that, really. Yeah. Um, you you mentioned the look of the film, the black and whites. Yeah. Um, to say that you you tend to find it pretentious, a modern film doing that. Yes. Um, I don't. Did you say whether you think that about this though? Well, to be honest, I can't understand why it's in black and white. Mm. You know, I mean. Um, yeah, there might be contextual reasons for it. There might be financial reasons. Maybe they didn't have they didn't have yeah. the money to kind of bring together coherent uh, a, a, a color scheme, say, or mm. you know, a design scheme for the film that would use color. I mean, all of those things kind of are expensive. Um, but I I can't think of a reason for shooting it in black and white that's not a negative. There's a, there's a distancing effect to it, I think, and a kind of idealizing look. You know, it's not uh, realistic. It's it's there's a there's a I don't want to say dreamlike because that's such a cliche, but I can't think of a better word either. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's um there's a, a kind of nostalgic, kind of imaginary quality to mm. what's going on, which I think may go along with kind of what you're saying about the idealization of the, the way that life is depicted. Mm. You know, um, it doesn't feel realistic it feels idealized i think i think it looks very beautiful you know i think there are some amazing shots in there i think there's some there are some wonderful kind of composition i think the things when the, when when you first see the car uh being pulled into the drive and it's, yes, it's, it's so wonderful. wide so wide it only just yes. fits and and it's done where you don't see the, the dad driving it at all you just see you see the car kind of just getting by on the walls, you see his hand moving on the gear stick. That whole scene was fantastic. I, I cringed. Intercut you know. close-ups. You know, yeah. so there are some wonderful kind of visual moments. And I think the black and white kind of high contrast look to it um, is worth it for its own sake. I think it's beautiful to look at. But... I'm less convinced of that. And actually, it was interesting, again, referring back to that Mediatico dossier, where he was saying, well, you know, part of the pleasure of seeing it in 65 is to see the gradations of you know the mm. of contrast and uh, in in the black and whites and so on that you actually see more and see better. Uh, um, so maybe you know that's part of a design that we didn't get seeing it on Netflix. Um, I thought the shots were extraordinary. I actually didn't think that visually it was extraordinary. So let me make a distinction. So the composition of shots was extraordinary. Mm. The actual kind of um, filming of it, I didn't find it so. The execution. Yes. Mm. I mean, I didn't think... Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I. So, you know, when I'm talking about shots, it's almost like I'm kind of... I'm talking about, uh, you know how space is kind of constructed through the camera and through camera movement. And some of those things, like I said, you know, the students protest on one side while, be, you know, kind of being in the in the furniture store, yeah, on the mm. other side of the frame, I thought, that wow, that's kind of extraordinary. I mean, imagine kind of organizing that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but when you're looking at the image itself, I kind of, um, you know, I, I, I didn't... Uh, it didn't register very much with me. I mean, you know, what I'm noticing is often questions like, why is there so much flair? <laughs> like, what's the purpose of the flair? Yeah. Right. Or, you know, kind of there are scenes, for example, in the beach where I thought it could have all been done more poetic, really, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so so I'm not 
I'm not fully convinced of that. I think what is extraordinary about the film is the sound. Yes. You know, I kind of, uh, you know, we saw it in Sensoround, was it? Surround sound. Surround sound. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, well, I'm just. Well, I mean, frankly, what what a um, what a privilege it is for you to have been given a surround sound system by me, free of charge, because <laughs> because I know the difference so well. <laughs> be, because because um, this film really takes advantage of it, and actually it takes advantage. I mean, I was gonna when you talked about the execution of the shots, I was thinking the phrase student film. Um. In a not complimentary way, because what I meant by that, what I mean is that um, it there are shots which are so sort of deliberately and carefully composed, but seem to lack anything more than technique mm. that you just notice them. You notice the shots, and I don't think that's to the film's credit. And I think to an extent you could say the same of the sound design, insofar as you don't tend to get films, you don't tend to get soundtracks in which the rear speakers are used so heavily in the mm. sound mix. Mm. Um, so in this, I think it's to the film's credit though in this, I think it worked very well, that in this, um, the, the film kind of goes to pains to really, and again, this is a bit of a cliche, but puts you in the middle of a scene. And what I mean by that is, is you'll be situated in, in, the, in the kind of soundscape between two characters speaking. Mm. You know, one in front of the camera and the other behind, and the sound will come from behind when they speak. That's not very usual. Sound is normally, no matter where mm. the character is, coming from the front. You know, mm. so it's very noticeable. But but I think it works. There, yeah, there, are, there are times when you're sat in. I remember a, a, a part in particular where you're sat kind of with the family and the TVs on, and the TVs in front of you, and you hear the family behind, and then the camera cuts, mm. and looks the other way, and the family's in front, and you hear them eating dinner, or what have you, and the TV's behind, mm. and you get this feeling of the of the the life. You know of the world, and I think that kind of goes um, that goes hand in hand with those three hundred and sixty degree shots, where yeah. you're, you're you're kind of trying to be given a sense of a living world that's all around you. Mm. That somehow by by giving you this off screen space, the film is intimating a much bigger world than mm. what you're seeing on screen. Yes, um, which I think is interesting. Again, I think it's very noticeable. I don't think it ever kind of goes into blends into the background. And there are times when the sound design, I think, very deliberately gets incredibly loud mm. uh, in all the speakers you know mm. and and uh, like like at the beach for instance um or the the forest fire you know things get unbelievably loud and you you can hardly ignore it you know mm. um but there's something very bold about it and entertaining um and Again, I suppose I would say a bit like the black and white, kind of worth it for its own sake. I'm not sure if it's really achieving any more than that. I miss the colour in this. I think it would have been lovely to have seen Mexico in the 1970s in colour. Yeah. You know, um, so I, I don't understand the black and white. But let's go back to the central thing, because I do think it's... it's I love Cuaron's um, Ito Mama Tambien, which this has references to, actually. You know, there's a scene um, in... Where you know they're driving across the mountains, and one of the narrators says, "And that's where my nanny was from." Blah blah blah. I'm not telling anybody. Blah blah blah. Right. You know, there is kind of like a, a um, you know a reference to that in Itumatamien. But I love Itumatamien. I love Children of Men. I loved uh, um, Gravity, which I have not, you know, seen since I saw it on a big screen. But on a big screen, 
It was amazing. I went back to see it when it was... They, they re-released it a couple of months ago and it was still really good. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think he, he is truly a great uh, director, uh, which I am not convinced that Iñárritu is, for example. Uh, so, you know, kind of... These criticisms of this film are, you know, within that context, yeah? I still think it's an extraordinary film. I still think kind of what it does, you know, to make the protagonist this indigenous servant uh, is quite extraordinary. I think it has little touches that do void some of the arguments that I have with it. So, for example, you do get the sense that the maids live in a completely different world. And one of the ways that you do is orally through the soundtrack, right? So, you know, the film begins, I think it's Rocio Jurado who's singing, you know, so you, you, they have the radio on and they're listening to pop music and rancheras and, mm. right? And, you know, then with the father's always listening to classical music, mm. right? And so on. So you do get the sense that, the, you know, the, the servants live in different worlds and they have a different voice and so on. I still don't think that they're given as much interiority as I would like and as much context. I mean, you know, and, but you could argue maybe that their context is the family, this family mm. that, you know, they might as well be indentured too, you know, uh, and that actually maybe that's the complexity of the film that, you know, there is love and affection, but also hierarchy and gradations and power. Yeah, the film does kind yeah. of dramatize all of that. And that actually is quite a complex thing to dramatize, mm. you know, which I think is really great. Yeah. I, th I do think that not just the maids, but everyone in the film are connected to through what felt like signifiers rather than um, kind of really deeply built characters. Mm. I, th I felt they were signifiers of what the characters represented, you know, all the, the kind of classes and backgrounds that they, you know, was kind of hinted at that they came from. Mm. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I mean, I mean, the thing, to, the thing is that... <laughs> On the one hand, you've got Richard Brody, who whose whose piece I was like, oh, he said everything and so much better. And then the other hand, you've got the Mediatico articles, which I think are fantastic and just picked up on things or talked about things that I had barely thought of or given no consideration to at all. Mm. That just saw things I didn't. Mm. You know, an um, example? Oh, I can't think. All of them. I mean, <laughs> no, really. I'm, there are a couple. That, there are a couple that talk about it being uh, that talk about the distribution and the and um, uh, the. Because one guy talks about seeing it in Mexico, and and someone else talks about its distribution on Netflix. So those not exactly, but the, but the ones that speak about about the way that kind of feminism is depicted, or the, or the idea that kind of um, uh, the mother can afford to be uh, a kind of new feminist because she has a maid picking up the slack for her. Absolutely. It's an interesting kind of thing, which yeah. is something that I just don't. You know, yes. needed the article to sort of pick up on that sort of thing for me. So, yes. um, I mean, it's, it's the film is very interesting, and I, I really recommend it to everybody. You know, because on the one hand, like you know, the the patriarchal world is depicted like so beautifully, so clearly. You know, the husband comes home and he's complaining about the house not being clean enough and you know, full of dog shit. Um, you know, and you know, as soon as she's divorced, this guy just comes on to try it with her because mm. she's available. So. The film brings up issues of sexism and patriarchy kind of very clearly. I think it doesn't bring up, you know, distinctions between the rural and the urban, you know, and the indigenous and the white population or 
you know, classes and, you know, a subaltern person. Mm. It's all it's all there, but well, I was going to say it doesn't do it. It doesn't do it to the extent that I'd like. I'd like more the maid's point of view and the maid given more of a life and a richer inner life, you know. And I think she is she is a bit of a cipher, really, you know, kind mm. of. Um, and I and I and I do think. <clears throat> that that is the result of you know a white upper middle class person from the background of the family depicted in the film making that film i do think you know yeah a, a kind of somebody from um an indigenous background or a poor background or mm-hmm. somebody whose family had been made would have told a very different story about that and someone who wasn't a kid when this was all like this this is the thing i say about when when, good point when directors are making films about what their life was like when they were kids of course everything was better back then they were kids yes they didn't understand all the problems (laughs) they didn't see them they were hidden from them again this was in the Brody article where he talks about something that quaron has said in, in another interview about how when he was a kid the stories that his maid would tell him was made slash nanny would tell him about kind of where she came from and hardships and things like that. He thought of as as adventures, mm. you know. Whereas to her, obviously, they weren't. Yeah. But it's like that's a kid's perspective, and it's like, and that kind of stays with you. He doesn't remember life being mm. rubbish, and he doesn't depict life as being rubbish, and can't. There ha- seems to have little conception of it. There is the, there is the riot, which is clearly a big deal, and people got shot in it, mm. and, and ruthlessly, mm. you know, and and like. The kids kind of being chased, kids, students mm. being chased and shot, but it's it's a kind of spike out of almost nowhere. I don't know if it's out of nowhere. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, so you know, um, you hear in dialogue, you know, about somebody just being shot on the street uh, in front of the grandmother. I think so. You know, you you have a sense that that casual violence is part of the life. Also, the neighborhood that they live is an upper class one, and you could see a that they're protected by these barriers. I mean, you know, kind of this is this is a neighborhood under siege in a way. So you know, it has an inner door, it has an outer door. You see that the family has a driver that drives them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm sure partly that's for security reasons. It's not just two drives, since they all can drive, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, it's kind of like a chauffeur bodyguard. Right, kind of the film has intimations of all of those things, and there's that recurring thing of you know the band or the soldiers maneuvering through the streets, yeah, you know, that recurs several times. I'm not sure what to make of it yet, but you know, we see that three or four times, right? Yeah, um, so uh, you know, that would probably kind of require a different viewing, um, but it, yeah, I don't think it comes out of nowhere, the, okay, that's yeah. unfair, but. It's interesting because, you know, so, you know, we're talking about the influence of neorealism, which the film, I think, you know, it's very evident in the film. And obviously another of the things that neorealism, you know, was famous for was the melodrama. And that moment that we're talking about is a moment, is an intensely melodramatic moment, right? Mm -hmm. She goes by this, the crib for her baby. The student protests happen around her. You know, somebody comes into the furniture store to shoot other people. And then one of the people who is actually doing the shooting is the father of her baby. As her water breaks. I mean, that's intensely melodramatic, right? Like, you know, I mean, kind of, 
Yeah. Kind of, uh, uh, so, and of course, then the baby ends up being born dead, right? And, you know, because she didn't want it and so on. Uh, well, she thinks because she didn't want it. So, so I mean, I think the film is really, like you said earlier, it's very carefully put together. It's very carefully structured. Everything is there for a reason, you know. Um, I think kind of some of the ways that it's knit through, I'm not sure I fully grasp yet. Um, and I think it would benefit from a second viewing. I think I think quite honest films always do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this question of perspective, you know, so everybody's talking about uh, it's Cleo's point of view and Cleo has a voice. Well, actually, it's Quaron's point of view on Cleo from a moment of his childhood. There's kind of various kinds of distancing mm-hmm. kind of going on. And she doesn't get much of a voice. And actually, she doesn't get kind of much interiority. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that because... So the film is, is being praised for elements of the film that I think it falls short on, where actually there are other aspects of the film that I think are magnificent, really. Yeah. Um, the, the world building or the kind of... The, it's more like the inter the dynamics of of worlds, right. yeah. The kind of are separate, but interconnected, right? So you know, for example, you know when they go uh, on on holiday for Christmas or whatever, you know, and there's all these rich people and they're doing the guns and there's the forest fire and the decor and all the all the heads of their pets and yeah, I mean, kind of you know, and then kind of the grandmother is there, but this guy comes on to the wa- to the mother. Right, and you know, the mm. maid goes into another netherworld, you know, where they go through huge steps to get to. Feels mm. like, you know, going to a whole other world. Well, all of that is taking place at the same time, and you know, there's also all there's all these dynamics about race and class and gender, mm. yeah, that kind of erupt in interesting ways, you know, in one scene, right? Yeah, you know, that's probably so, the best scene of the um, So I think. I think that's all great, really. Uh, I think it's a film to see again. Um, yeah, and, and so you know, I'm being contrarian, I suppose, because you know what you know. Oh, unlike you. <laughs> well, you know, you're trying to grasp things. Um, so, I, basically, I would say that Brody is not wrong. Hmm. You know, and actually, the criticisms that he levels of the film are kind of. Uh, criticisms worthy of consideration. They have some foundation. Yes. But at the same time, what the writers for Mediatico uh, wrote, quote, you know, some to some degree in response and to some degree just mm. uh, expressing what they thought, are also just as worthy of consideration. Well, no, absolutely, absolutely. Kind of one or the other. You know, and I think um, that's the film's richness, yeah. yeah? Um, so, and... and um, Who knew that people could have different opinions on things and they both could be acceptable? That's not the way I was brought up. (laughs) Anyway, um, we should probably wrap up here. Really, I kind of i i i was really riveted, and uh, as I said, I had prejudices about the black and white, and also about the length. And um, you know, I was enthralled throughout, and certainly, it's given us a lot to talk about, and and a lot more to think about. So, I'd highly recommend it. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, all of that. I wasn't as riveted. So when we when we paused it at about fifty two minutes, when you went to get a glass of water, mm. personally, I would have happily just turned it off. Ah. And I think that is one of the problems with with watching a film on Netflix that in the cinema I certainly wouldn't have left. Uh-huh. You know. Well, but if I were you... watching, if I'd been watching this on my own, I 
that very likely wouldn't have stuck it out. Which would have been to my detriment, because it was worth finishing. I mean, mm. you know, it's, it'd be very churlish to say, and I wouldn't have missed anything. Like, <laughs> clearly, you know, clearly, it was worth yeah. finishing, but um, that's always going to be a detriment of, of the in the Netflix versus cinema thing. Yes. Um, well, well yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's, a, a, that's a different conversation. A different argument, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but um, worth a look, certainly. Yes. And certainly in the context of the various things people have written about it, because... That, that's all enriched yes. my experience of it. Yes, and actually that's worth underlining, you know. So, so uh, the film is a talking point culturally at the moment. Uh, and, you know, part of the reason is that there's so many interesting things that's been, that have been written on it. One is the Richard Brody article uh, for The New Yorker. And the other is this Mediatico special issue you know, that was done almost immediately. I was actually shocked to see how quickly they turned it around. Mm. So uh, basically, Dolores Tierney got eight people, I think, you know, all really distinguished uh, people, really distinguished uh, uh, writers on the field, to to write immediately kind of, you know, their responses to the film and, you know, sp- having seen it kind of in different places. And they're all worth reading. So we would highly recommend uh, this uh, yeah. Mediatico special issue. And we will post the link uh, uh, to to this podcast. And they're all on a range of topics. That's the really great thing about the Mediatico issue. Yes. You know, there's, 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 there are people who talk about the distribution. There are people who talk about... There's one guy who talks about having watched it in Mexico and what that was like. And there are people talking about the themes and the design of the film and so on. So there's a, a, very, there's a lot to talk about. And the pieces are... We kind of got through them in sort of 15, 20 minutes. They're not yes. very long essays either. No, they're not. They're very concise yes. and well-written. Uh, so, so highly recommend. And really kind of worth, uh, you know, having at least a skim through once you've seen the film. It will really enrich your, your experience of watching it. Yeah, sound. All right. Thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and... We're on iTunes and SoundCloud and YouTube, uh, Facebook and Twitter, and eavesdroppingatthemovies.com is our website. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you.